Welcome back to Supreme Myths. Um, today is Monday. We are still in the early stages of the Biden administration. Um, but today we're going to talk first a little about current events and then a lot about the Supreme Court. I am extremely pleased to have as my guest Christopher John Sprigman, the Murray and Kathleen Bring Professor of Law at NYU. I kind of wish it was Bing because my kids would like that from, <laughs> from, from friends. Um, Chris is yeah, an yeah. expert on uh, really a lot of different things, which is kind of cool about him. And I trust expert, intellectual property expert. He has become a constitutional law expert and maybe my favorite constitutional law expert of the last 10 years. That's because he agrees with me about a lot of things, and we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, most of my guests, Chris, have disagreed with me about most things, so this will be fun. Um, he's written numerous books, numerous articles, um, but his latest is, I think, really important. Um, they're all important, but this one's important to me. It's called, it's an NYU, and it's called Congress's Article Three Power and the Process of Constitutional Change, which is a great title for an article. Chris, welcome. I'm so glad to have you. Eric, thanks for having me on. I appreciate uh, it. It's my pleasure. And I've actually, I've actually been in the space you're sitting at, and it is a, when I visited you in Brooklyn, it is a beautiful space. And uh, as a kid who grew up in Long Island, when Brooklyn wasn't really so nice, that day we had um, walking around Brooklyn was really nice and special, I have to admit. It was fun. Yeah, this is pre-pandemic times when you yes. could just walk around freely and have fun in Brooklyn. Yeah, it was fun. Um, all right, before we get to Supreme Court and jurisdiction stripping and all of that, Current events for a minute. Are you as confident as most other progressives seem to be that we should definitely have an impeachment trial for Trump? Because I'm only about 60% sure. I am not 100% sure like everybody else. Yeah, so I guess I'm one of those people who believes that there have to be consequences for bad actions. And I think one of the real problems that we have in this country is that consequences are increasingly only for the little people. <laughs> so, you know, Donald Trump calls essentially for an insurrection uh, in not so many words. Pe people pay attention to him. They heed his call. They go and they do what they do. There have to be some consequences other than having him go to Mar-a-Lago and play golf. Um, you know, I, I, I could mention other people. So Rod Rosenstein at the Department of Justice, the deputy attorney general, there's, there's an inspector general's report um, right. that suggests that Rosenstein told U.S. attorneys in the border region that they had to enforce the child separation policy. They had to prosecute migrant parents regardless of the age of their children. Uh, Rosenstein's at King and Spalding as a partner. You know, no consequences so far um, for that kind of behavior. So, you know, I, th I think there is a huge issue. Um, does it have to be impeachment? I mean, I'm not sure what else it is at this point. Uh, I, I think for what I have Trump to say did. I'm very sympathetic to the consequences idea, especially because the two authors of the infamous torture memo, one is a tenured law professor at Berkeley and one is a federal judge of all things. They suffer right. not only did they not suffer consequences, it seems like they were kind of rewarded for what they did. And that's insane. So I, I agree with that. Right. There's elite, you know, and a disturbing amount of elite impunity in this country. And it, 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 it it is part, I think, of why we got Trump in the first place. So it's, this is hard to prove, but I, I tend to have, I have the feeling that, you know, people lived through the financial crisis. There were a lot of consequences for ordinary people, people who lost their homes, people who lost their jobs, people who suffered family breakup as a result. Um, terrible. Um, the bankers who helped to engineer all this, there were virtually no consequences for them. And you know, that was during the Obama administration. I think a lot of people got the impression that, 
you know, failure of consequence for elites was a project of our elites. And so they elected someone. Right. I, I, this doesn't explain everything, but I think it, it explains some of it. They elected someone who they thought would kind of break up that 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 tendency. I mean, he didn't, obviously, but that's what people thought. And maybe even made it a lot worse, which is which is terrible. Right. Where, where I'm coming from, and, I, and it's an emotional thing, I think you're right. But my emotional side tells me, not, not my logical, analytical side, so and I'm not sure which to listen to, to be honest. But my emotional right. side says... It is so wonderful to be done with him and rid of him. Yes. And I'm a little nervous about two weeks or one week or five days or two days, or whatever it's going to be, focusing on this. And then, Chris, we don't get a conviction. See, I'm worried about right. doing this and not getting a conviction. And then all the worries you have are magnified again, right? I'm worried about that, too. I'm worried about the fact that the Republican Party seemed to have a few days where there was a slight <laughs> bit of soul searching and they very quickly recovered from that and yeah. went back to, you know, their fealty to Donald Trump, as far as I can see. So the people who are most likely to suffer consequences are people like Liz Cheney, who actually took a stand. Right. Um, that's discouraging. And I worry about what you're saying. And the one thing I will say is. The only thing I'm sure about is that it's impossible to be sure here. We're so far yep. away from anything that is precedented, that we understand, that we can kind of choreograph in advance, that I think we're all just exercising our judgment. And that's basically what we're doing. I agree with that. I think that's fair. One last question about this. So on Twitter, mm-hmm. um, I have been extremely vocal <laughs> about Leonard Leo. First, yeah. where is he? So for people who don't know, he was the executive vice president, but basically head of the Fairless Society in 2016. And when Trump won the primary, he absolutely helped Trump get elected. He helped prepare the list of judges. Obviously, Trump didn't know originalism from, you know, any other kind of ism. So, so his speech is about Scalia dying and replacing him with an original. That's all Leonard Leo all the way down. And then he went to work for Trump directly. Like, we don't even have to guess. He went to work for him directly to pick judges. And, at, and then he came out of that, returned to the Federalist Society, and now it's unclear what his status is. at the. But shouldn't they issue some kind of formal, we were wrong, we're sorry, it was a bad decision at the time, we apologize? Like, shouldn't that happen? So there are two things going on here. One, I think, is relatively superficial. The other is deep. The superficial thing is, I think the Federalist Society feels that the niceties have been observed, by which I mean that the Federalist Society as such has not done any of this work. It's just the Federalist Society people have done this work outside of the (laughs) scope of the society. So whether all the niceties have been observed is a a really great question, but that's the superficial question. The deep question is whether, in fact, you know, the Federalist Society membership feels that a mistake has been made. From what I see, um, I have lots of acquaintances and friends who are conservative and who are Federal Society members, and I I see them split in much the same way the Republican Party is split. And some of them believing this was a mistake, it wasn't worth it to get all these judges, to get these tax cuts, what what the the, the destruction of our norms, of our laws. Right. Some, some thinking, well, like, yeah, bad things happened, but, you know, we can, we can repair that and move forward. And in the meantime, we got a bunch of goodies. Um, I get the sense that in the Republican Party as a whole, the, the, the Trumpist forces are in the short term going to win that battle. 
um, that, that the Republican Party is going to move forward as a Trumpist party, in part because they are very afraid that if they don't, that Trump will organize a party that will move forward as the Trumpist party, and that will consign the Republican Party to also ran status. So the, the, the threat is so real to them that I think the Republican Party, I mean, I don't know, but I, I suspect in the short term, at least, they're likely to go that way. Will the Federal Society go with the Republican Party on this? I mean, I don't, I don't know. I think it's a closer question there. So once one last point on that. I, I, I agree with everything you just said. The law professors I know in the Federalist Society think it was a mistake, I think. The lawyers and rank and file, I'm not quite as sure. I would settle for just <laughs> something like, all right, so we misjudged the guy. And maybe, maybe his destruction of our norms weren't any, any public statement, but to just let Leonard Leal disappear. And he's basically disappeared as far as I can tell. And he really is the guy. Uh, he and McGahn yeah. together are the guys. Anyway, I, 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 personally, I want some atonement, but I, I guess it's not, it's not going to happen. But If it happens, it's going to happen a long time in the future. Yeah. Right. Um, it's going to happen in the way that, you know, to some degree, the Republican Party has atoned for the Southern strategy. Yes. It's not a full atonement. Yes. It's not an explicit atonement. <laughs> but I, I think within the Republican Party, it's, it's, it's understood that the Southern strategy came at a terrific long-term cost right. to the party and to the country. Right. All right. All right. Now we're going to start talking about your article, which I really want to promote. Um, but I want to get there right. in a longer way. So sure. I think I understand you came to teaching constitutional law relatively late in, in, in your career. Is that right? No. Okay. I mean, I came to law teaching relatively late in my career. I was, I was 38 when I became a law professor, okay. which is older than a lot of people are when they first start. But I, before I was a law professor, I had, I had clerked both in the U.S. and the Ninth Circuit, and then I clerked in South Africa for the constitutional court there. I taught constitutional law in South Africa. Um, and I, I became very interested in and started to write about comparative constitutional law. When I came back to the States, um, I took a job at the Justice Department, and then I, I took a job at, at a law firm, and then I went to Stanford to transition into academia. I, I was really focused on IP. There was a lot of stuff I wanted to say there. Yeah. And, th and when I went to Virginia, which was my first job, I started teaching first-year con law, among other things. Um, and it pretty quickly became clear to me that um, there, there was a bit of a cultural um, divide between the way I felt about the discipline and what the students expected me to feel about the <laughs> discipline. I, I, I tried very hard not to um, uh, communicate to them explicitly how I felt a lot of about a lot of con law doctrines and the, the history of the discipline. But I, I think it leaked through a little bit. My, my students generally, I think, appreciated the course. But I, I do think I was robbing them a little bit of something, which was some, some of the romance of the, of the field. When you say the romance, do you mean being critical? Or do you mean, well, I'm not sure what you mean by romance. I think the romance is something like students come to constitutional law thinking this is going to be the most fulfilling intellectual, but also moral content they get in law school. So they're, they're going to see the law at its best in, in, in terms of its, basically its technical aspect, but they're also going to see the law kind of vindicating, you know, the right point of view on great moral questions. Right. And with respect to both the kind of technical elegance of con law, which is often lacking, it's often pretty clunky and transparently political, 
and with respect to the moral content, which is deeply mixed, um, I think students, I was worried I was disappointing them. I had a hard time kind of dressing it up. So you tweeted something out that led to the the most uh, uh, tagged blog post I've ever written or whatever the right word is for, for someone who goes to a blog post, blog post page. You tweeted one, something about constitutional law being all made up stuff. And, and then I wrote a blog post about that statement that really, it, it is my most successful blog post ever. When you said it was all made up, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? So I don't think it's all made up, but I think in, in very important respects, it is. So, so for example, um, First Amendment jurisprudence. I think if you follow the arc of First Amendment jurisprudence, you see various theories about what speech is and what, what important speech is and what protected speech is kind of working their way out in the court's opinions. Um, there, none of that comes from the First Amendment, right? It's, right. Th- there, there isn't a coherent originalist account of the First Amendment. There's certainly not a coherent textualist account of the First Amendment that you can actually implement. So, you know, Justice Black had an account, which is Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. And he, he really meant no law. Um, that can't be right because, you know, copyright law abridges the freedom of speech. Federal perjury law. Copy what you F- federal perjury, perjury law. Conspiracy law, right? So we we can't actually have that uh, as the the rule. Um, So there's always, I think, in First Amendment jurisprudence, essentially been um, kind of entrepreneurship going on. So the the court essentially makes rules, it remakes rules. And, you know, commercial speech has a certain status 50 years ago, not much protection. Now it has virtually, not, not quite equivalent, but approaching equivalent protection to political speech, right? Is art protected? Is it not protected, right? There's there's always these questions and the court is essentially kind of bootstrapping itself into a theory. Okay, um, right. And I think what you just described this for, in First Amendment law is true for due process, equal protection, the whole thing. And I don't know that much about the Fourth through Eighth Amendments, but people I talk to say they're even worse. <laughs> so I don't, you know. Yeah. I mean, due process, the story of due process is a great example. So the, you know, the, the, the real question is, is due process really only about process or is it also about substance? Court fairly early on says it's about substance. What's the substance? The substance is a slave owner's substantive <laughs> interest in a property of right. the human that he owns. Um, That's for, for the non-lawyers, Chris of- is referring to the Dred Scott case in 1857. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's, of course, a wicked, a thoroughly evil understanding of what due process is. Um, the court then, you know, later reacts to that there's a great national convulsion. There's, you know, the, the country changes. The, the due process comes on the scene again in the, in the early 1900s in, in the guise of freedom of contract, right? So this is the kind of Lochner line of cases. So, and if you think about it, it makes some sense. So the first appearance of due process is uh, you can own someone else's labor. And the second appearance of due process is, no, 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 only you can own your labor. <laughs> but of course, that, 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 that while that might seem in the abstract to be a, 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 an admirable principle, it actually turns rancid very quickly. So you, your ownership of your labor means that um, the state legislatures can't, for example, set um, maximum hours rules to prevent you from you know, dropping dead on the job or getting <laughs> injured on the job or exhausted. Um, so, so, you know, the, the, the theory is essentially um, wholly kind of generated from 
the mind of judges. It, it doesn't doesn't actually come from anywhere else. Right. And that's that's I thought what you meant when you said it was all made up. And that's what I've been saying for for a long time. And I really don't know any litigated area of constitutional law where that's, where that's not true. The Commerce Clause goes back and forth all the time. You know. All right. So this article that you've written, um, we'll get to jurisdiction stripping in a minute. What problem are you mm-hmm. trying to solve, Chris? What 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 major issue out there is this article um, directed to? So the the major issue, I, I think, is the balance between democracy and constitutionalism. So that's so a we, big issue. We are, it's a huge issue, right? <laughs> so in this country, we are conditioned to think of democracy and constitutionalism as kind of working hand in glove. So. There is no democracy without constitutionalism. There is no constitutionalism without democracy. Actually, both of those things aren't right, but this is kind of our mythos. And we don't get a sense that um, the Constitution and democracy kind of butt heads. But the truth is, they do. They do all the time. Um, Democracy is, in a sense, limited by constitutionalism. The the question always is, to what degree? I think what happened to me in my life is when I went abroad and worked in a foreign jurisdiction and really learned a foreign country's constitution from scratch and participated in kind of the early germination of their constitutional law, both as a teacher and as a clerk, I came to see that, you know, there's a spectrum around the world of countries that balance democracy with constitutionalism. And we here in the United States are, to be frank, extremists. We lie on one tail of that distribution. We are on the tail that interferes the most with democracy on behalf of a constitution that is both very old and very terse and is enforced by an institution, the Supreme Court, which is essentially unaccountable democratically. So we are, we are an extreme outlier in that family of constitutional democracies. And th- th- that's the thing that I wanted to get across. And I also wanted to get across, if we wanted to shift it, what could we do? So, 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 and we'll get to your remedy for that in a second. So your colleague and my friend, Barry Friedman, who, um, by the way, once when I was a very young professor and he was already established, snuck into my federal course class and asked some questions, which was at the time extremely nerve wracking for me. I, but anyway, okay. your colleague and my friend, Barry Friedman, I think has a whole theory of constitutionalism in America. That's kind of dialogic is what he called it, I think. But then in fact, I don't agree with this. I love Barry. I love Barry and I don't agree with this theory. Um, Whereas it's really the court talking to the Congress and the court talking to the people and the people talking to the president. And it all works out, not all the time, but much of the time, because the court, although the the court has some limits in what it can do as a practical matter. Um, And and so I'm curious how much of that you think is accurate. I don't want you to, I don't want you to you know, to, to um, get your colleague mad at you. But I am curious how much you think of that is accurate. It doesn't, it doesn't do it for me in terms of justifying the court's power, but I'm wondering if it does it for you. It doesn't do it for me either. So I think I, I love Barry to death, yeah. and I think this idea has some validity, but I think it, it's constrained. It, it basically explains why the court just doesn't dictate. It explains at the outer limits what, 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 are, the, what are the boundaries of the court's power. But, for example, let's, let's take the court's First Amendment jurisprudence with respect to campaign finance contributions. So, again, the court just spins that up out of whole cloth. There is nothing, there's no guidance in the Constitution. There's no guidance, certainly, in our history that would suggest what those limits should be. The the court essentially just gins up and then imposes a theory. And this theory has enormously powerful consequences. It shapes the way 
our democratic politics runs. So, you know, does that mean that the court is constrained? Yeah, the court's constrained, but think of how the court has constrained our democracy, right? It has it has cemented in place as a matter of constitutional law, a particular way that we've come to run our democracy, a way which, by the way, is again, extremist, right? We, we have, you know, a system for money and politics that most, it, you know, affluent democratic nations don't have. They have many more uh, controls than we do. That, that, that seems to me to be an overweening power that in the long term is barely constrained. Yeah, the way I put that, I agree with that. We're going to agree a lot. So I agree with that 100%. Um, the way I put it is the only real constraint on the court is what they think they can get away with. And, and that actually has come up in America. I mean, Marbury versus Madison, the reason Marbury didn't get his commission was because Marshall didn't think that Jefferson would do it. Um, and I think we've had other situations similar to that. In our, but that constraint is not the one Barry's talking about, I don't think. And it's, and it's, and it's not much of a constraint. All right, so we both agree that the court plays much too much a, a, a much too large a role in our democracy, and the question is, and stops democracy from working. Um, I mean, the campaign finance reform is is really just made up stuff that that Roberts and Kennedy believed. Even Rehnquist didn't believe that. Right. O'Connor didn't believe it as yep. much. This is a Kennedy Roberts fabrication, is what it is. Um, all right. So tell me about your article. Where do you start? And, and, and how do we maybe try to get the wheels rolling so people will accept there's a possible fix to all this? Well, so just think of the classical understanding of judicial review in this country as it's developed. So there's a power of judicial review that allows the court to strike down laws. The, the striking down is, in a sense, self-executing. The law basically ceases to exist once struck down. That, by the way, is extremist as well. Lots of countries, right. you know, the court issues an opinion, but the legislature has to act, right? right? We, we don't have that, right? And again, this none of this is detailed in the Constitution. This is all essentially bootstrapped out of a very bare text. So what, what struck me is that um, there are two ways, essentially, to address this. One is the Article 5 amendment process, which is also extremist. <laughs> it, it requires an enormous supermajority to be put together to get any constitutional change. So if you think the Constitution as, you know, the Constitution is a garment, ours is a straitjacket. It, it fits extremely tightly. It's incredibly difficult to unlock. Um, so I'm looking at the text and I'm thinking, well, you know, what's interesting is in Article 3, there's, there's some text that suggests that there, there is a way to change the Constitution that, that, that is not an amendment. It's, it's something short of that. Um, it doesn't require a supermajority, and that is the Article Three text that makes clear that Congress has essentially plenary control over both the existence of and the jurisdiction of the lower federal courts. And importantly, it has the power to make exceptions to the appellate jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. So what does that mean in practice? What that means is that Congress, let's take campaign finance because we've been talking about that. Yeah. Let's say Congress thinks, you know, this interpretation of the First Amendment is basically screwing up our democracy and we've got to do something about it. And they'd be right. So they can, they'd be right. But go ahead. <laughs> right. So, so, so they legislate and they attach to that legislation a provision that says the court will not review this for First Amendment, you know, uh, uh, constitutionality. So that's a that's an exception to the Supreme Court's jurisdiction. They can also remove the jurisdiction of the lower federal courts in the in the statute. So what does that mean? That means that if the courts respect what Congress has done, Congress has exercised what I call its Article Three power to t 
take a decision about constitutionality and move it from courts to voters. And what do I mean by that? If voters don't like either the removal of federal jurisdiction or they don't like the regulations, they can discipline Congress in the way that voters do politically through the ballot box. That's the function that I think Article 3 actuates, this, this kind of removal or, or, or repositioning of accountability for specific issues, not, not across the board, but specifically, in our example, for campaign finance law, from courts to voters. Um, that is a way of kind of loosening the constitutional straitjacket of resetting in a, in a subtle way the boundary between democracy and constitutionalism in favor of a bit more democracy, a bit more constrained constitutionalism, or at least a bit more constrained judge-centered constitutionalism. Right. This, is, this is a way of kind of um, installing a bit of popular constitutionalism and subtracting a bit from judicial constitutionalism. What, what so attracted me to this article at first and to these ideas um, not only on the merits, I agree with you, but also kind of selfishly a little bit on my part. If you're, if someone, if you believe in text and you believe in original meaning, then you have to agree mm-hmm. with this. And that's, and, and, and by the way, I, so I've been teaching federal courts for 30 years. <laughs> it's a long time. When I first started teaching federal courts, conservatives agreed with you and liberals disagreed right. with you. And I'm guessing that would right. be flipped today, but right. Probably. Well, so I think it's a little complicated because, uh, right, at one time, liberals really feared this because yeah. what were they doing? They were building a kind of rights revolution. And what they really feared was the kind of rights revolution being undermined by like pesky voters <laughs> who really didn't want all these rights. And so they, they envisioned Congress basically using jurisdiction stripping to take the courts out of it when the, when the rights revolution was really a judicial mission. Now. That's been over for a long time, right? The courts have not been, you know, in the vanguard of a rights revolution right. for what, like 35 years? With one exception. With uh, one exception. Right, gay oh, marriage. Yeah. So, 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 so th- that's for the most part been over. But I think a lot of law professors on the left haven't yet adjusted or they haven't Tell fallen me about out of it. love with <laughs> judicial supremacy. Yeah. On the right, the story's a little different. So there's a, there's, there's on the right, a at one time there was a fervor for this. Yes. So, and I'll I'll mention the name of Chief Justice Roberts, who, when Chief Justice Roberts was at the Justice Department, there were a raft of kind of right wing bills before Congress that, for example, um, uh, liberalized rules about school prayer, meaning allowing school prayer in public schools and stripping the court's jurisdiction to review that. Um, the Justice Department at the time, Ted Olson and. Chief Justice Roberts were both at the Justice Department. Ted Olson wrote a memo saying, we should oppose this jurisdiction stripping. It's a, it's a principled position to oppose this because we, we want you know the rule of law. And Chief Justice Roberts wrote a counter memo basically saying, no, we, you know, this, we, should, we should align with democracy here. Um, uh, it's, it's interesting. So I think in the years since, as conservatives have kind of asserted control over the federal judiciary and what you get is a kind of rights revolution in reverse, where yep. suddenly you know you have the prospect of the courts reviving a non-delegation doctrine to limit the administrative state, or reviving a kind of First Amendment as substantive limit on a lot of government action. Suddenly, um, this past support for jurisdiction stripping is being very much soft pedaled. So it, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I, I agree with all that, but I do want to make the point that the text of the Constitution 
unambiguously and unequivocally gives Congress this power. And the Madisonian Compromise was to some degree all about this. It's Congress to decide whether to have lower federal courts, and it's for Congress to decide whether we need lower federal courts, and it's for Congress to decide how they're structured. And the amount of controversy requirement is an example of that. Right now it's 75000 It could be 150, 200, whatever. It's up to Congress. And I think your article is very, very, um, well, it's very, very sophisticated and, 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 and is at a very high level. But at bottom, if one's a textualist or an originalist or both, they have to agree with this, in my opinion. I, well, I think they have to go a certain distance toward agreeing with it, but I think there are limits. And I try to, a couple of things that I, I, I think are a little bit more subtle that are, that are worth thinking about. One, so at bottom, I agree with you that the Constitution is pretty clear on this. So Congress has plenary power to create or to not create yep. lower federal courts. It has plenary power to control their jurisdiction. Um, that was clear right from the beginning, the 1789 Judiciary Act. There was no general federal question jurisdiction in right. lower federal courts. And the courts. very so, first law passed yeah. by Congress, too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So right from the start, right? So um, both in terms of the text and in terms of the history, everything aligns. Um, in terms of the exceptions clause, so Congress makes exceptions to the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction over history. These exceptions have been enforced. Um, so again, there isn't much question. The question arises when, so for example, in, in, your, in the example we've been talking about, let's say Congress legislates to uh, provide a different set of rules for campaign finance than the court has blessed heretofore. So then, you know, the question is, can Congress strip federal jurisdiction in an instance where to do so would be to, in a sense, override a constitutional rule that has been established by the court. And there, I think the, the, the Constitution does not clear because, you know, we have the First Amendment, but we also have Article 3. So which one overrides? Does the First Amendment override Article 3? Does Article 3 override right. the First Amendment? My argument is, you know, realistically, if Congress wants to use Article 3 in this way, it can do so. That, that so much of constitutionalism is simply what's possible if the institution with the power actually acts. And at the end of the day, it's Congress who has the power. The Supreme Court can't even pay its own rent. If Congress wishes to, to, to enforce the, the primacy of Article 3, it can do so. It, it's just, it, it's politically costly, potentially. Right. But constitutionally, I think it's a, a pretty straight shot. I think of v- I'm not sure. I'm sure I'll be checked on this, but I think there's a line from the musical Evita: "Politics is the art of the possible." I think that's right, and 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 I, I agree with you that if Congress had the political will to do this, you know, Congress abolished the 1801 term of the Supreme Court. Now, I'm not saying it can do that today, but think about that as an original matter. They told the court, "You cannot meet, much less you can't meet to decide certain cases." You know, um, so. And the, there was this debate, I think, in the 50s or 60s, I forget, um, between two very famous scholars. And, and a theory arose from all that called the essential functions thesis, which if one is a living constitutionalist, I think is a fair thing to do. If one's a textualist and an originalist, I don't think it's a fair thing to do. But you will get pushback on that essential functions thesis. So why don't you... Sure. So I spend a bit of time in the paper on this. I think it is worth spending time on because I, I think it shows the kind of machinery of constitutional law at work. And what do I mean by that? 
So there's text in the Constitution that makes it pretty clear that Congress has this power to shape the federal court's jurisdiction. There's a long history of the Congress doing precisely that in the 1789 Judiciary Act and thereafter. There are exercises of the exceptions clause that are important exercises of the exceptions clause, for example, in Ex parte McCardle, the removal of certain habeas jurisdiction, right? So we have a rich history. So how does the con law uh, establishment react to that? So part of it reacts by saying, well, things have changed. So in our uh, constitutional democracy as it's developed, the Supreme Court has come to have this constitutional role that is essential, right? And that means essentially that every constitutional rights claim has to have a judicial remedy. And if you remove that judicial remedy, that violates the Constitution. Now, you know, that that's not from the Constitution. That's, that's a kind of interpolation based on historical change over time. To a certain extent, I would, okay, I, I'm even willing to buy the model but the, but the corollary to the model is that, you know, what you built, what Congress built, Congress can dismantle, right? So if, if Congress wishes to turn the Supreme Court from something that has like a tiny little original jurisdiction into something that's overweening, it can do so. But why is that a one-way ratchet, right? So I, I, I asked that in the paper, and that, you know, brings on, I think, the question of how the two-way ratchet would work. And that's where I say that's what Article 3 is there to do. Um, again, it's not, it's not that Congress can simply um, do this willy-nilly. It's that there's a political process, bicameralism, presentment that must be respected. Th those, especially given our constitutional culture, impose very stringent limits on Congress's ability to do this. But if Congress is determined and that determination lasts over time, to reset the boundaries, Article 3 allows us to do so. And I have to say, I have to add that I really do think history supports you on this, which is important to me, not because obviously I'm an originalist, because I think when smart people think about something and come up with something, we should pay attention to it. And Alexander Hamilton was really worried about the argument before the Constitution that this will make the Supreme Court too strong, it'll give them a veto over everything, and we, and we should not ratify the con. And his answer was very simple. His answer was, first, they'll do it rarely, which, of course, didn't turn out to be true. But, but as yeah. importantly, they have no person sword. And he knew that, and, and they knew that, and they expected Congress to play exactly the role that you're talking about. I think they expected Congress to play exactly that role. And what's getting in the way of that is actually the growth of this mythology about the centrality of judicially enforced rights yeah. to our the survival, the thriving of our constitutional democracy. So part of the mission of the paper is to say, you know, at the end of the day, and I think the Trump administration has shown us this, courts are actually not that effective <laughs> in enforcing democratic norms or in guaranteeing rights if the underlying democratic culture is diseased. Um, the, the surest protection for people against tyranny against, you know, inequality is democracy. That, that, that is something I think we're rediscovering at the moment. I hope we're rediscovering it because I, I think, you know, to some degree, lawyers and especially law professors are responsible for obscuring that truth. I, I agree with that. So let's, let's t talk about, so, so let me just say, I agree that as a matter of text, history, and policy, I think your proposal to give Congress this power is extremely sound and I like it a lot. But let's talk politics for a minute. Sure. So, sure. so next year, Congress finds a way at least to, to put a damper in the Supreme Court's non-originalist, atextual, judicial creativity about campaign finance reform. 
which no other democracy in the world comes even close to following. We should think right. about that for a minute too, but leave that aside. Um, however, after the 2022 midterms um, and then the 2024 election, we have a Republican Senate, a Republican House, and a Republican president, and they de facto overrule Obergefell, the same-sex marriage case, by saying no lower courts will have jurisdiction over this, Supreme Court won't have jurisdiction, and now Georgia makes same-sex marriage unconstitutional again. Which, by the way, as a political matter, is not going to happen because the, the, this generate. But let's assume that it could happen. Um, isn't that a worry? Aren't you concerned about that? Of course. I mean, so the, the point of Article Three is it doesn't come with a Democratic or Republican label. It can be used by parties in power. The break on use of Article Three in the way that you suggest is politics. So. What you're talking about right now, like, aren't you afraid of Obergefell? Aren't you afraid of Roe, right, being, you know, overturned by a future Congress? And sure. But the answer to that is, this is the hard work of politics, right? So to, to some degree, judge-centered constitutionalism gives us the illusion that we can take these issues off the table, that we can settle them, and that we can mandate a rule, and that rule is going to be stable. That is an illusion. It's actually a pernicious illusion. And I, I would, again, Roe is a, is a great example. So, you know, in the 70s, early 70s, people think, well, now this issue's off the table. This issue wasn't off the table for five minutes, right? What, what happened was the court ruled in Roe, and this led very directly to a kind of upsurge in the political potency of the anti-choice, pro-life, whatever label you want to give it, movement, to the point where our politics have been driven to an extent that I think people still have a hard time getting their heads around. Our politics, what, what it means to be a conservative, has been driven by opposition to Roe. It has been a organizing locus. It has been a funding locus. It, it, it has been the battle flag. That changed our politics very profoundly in ways that I think, at the end of the day, we didn't get the issue taken off the table. It's not clear that, you know, we didn't suffer in a lot of other ways. So, for example, you know, alliances between Catholics and liberals on many issues were impossible because of the church's opposition to abortion. And if you look at Catholic social welfare thinking, it, it, it is on, on labor rights, on the rights of immigrants, on the rights of the poor, very much aligned. And the death penalty. The and the, Correct. Yeah. I said all that on but, Twitter but this week. Uh, last week was the yeah. was the anniversary of Roe, and I said all of that on Twitter. And and I even and I said I think I used the phrase judicially, judicially protected, uh, women's reproductive rights has been only minimal because rich women always got abortions, poor women still can't get abortions, and all that stuff. Boy, the pushback from the left that I got, you wouldn't believe. I mean, just attack, attack, attack. And but I think they all missed the point, which was the point you just made which is every other issue feminists and liberals and progressives care about, Roe killed. And it's not a hurt deeply, except for same-sex marriage. And, and whether you're pro-choice or anti-choice or pro-life, the Supreme Court shouldn't play that big a role. That's all. The Supreme Court, it, it made it so much worse, I think. Yeah, I just want to focus on one thing that I think, you know, has to be dealt with, which is the idea that you know, it's easy for like an older white guy to say this sure. because we don't have anything directly at stake. And of course, that is true. Yeah, it's true. And there's there's no denying it. The, 
the question is, you know, once you get, once you acknowledge that, what, what can you say about the future of reproductive rights? And I think we are at a threshold now where the court is likely, we don't know, we can't tell the future with 100% certainty, but it seems likely that the 6-3 conservative majority on the court, newly bolstered by Amy Coney Barrett, who is, of course, very strongly anti-abortion in her personal views, that, that that court is going to chip away, is going to reduce over time protections for abortion. That That is going to be essentially the, the fruits of 30 plus years of organizing on the right to take control of the federal judiciary. Um, so, you know, facing that, the question is, what do people do now? And I think the answer is going to be that there is a working majority in this country for uh, pro-choice policies. And that, 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 that through democratic processes, I, I very much hope that 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 majority will, will prevail, but it'll take some time. We agree on that. I, I do want to address your white, you know, in my, your, your case, middle-aged, in my case, old, um, I'm 62, uh, white male perspective on this. Um, I have worked very closely with Planned Parenthood now for 15 years and um, in a number of different ways. I am pro-choice all the way down. Everybody knows that. Um, I have three daughters. And I, one's 29, but the other two are younger. And I, I want a world, Erin and I once wrote an op-ed on this, Erin Shemersky and I, I want a world where those daughters have control over their reproductive choices. That's my policy position. It's not clear to me at all that that world is going to be um, for them, is going to work better for them because of the Supreme Court. And I've been talking to Planned Parenthood for a decade about how a lot of your money needs to go to lobbying and go to the middle schools and the high schools. And Chris, this is a huge issue because my 12 and 11-year-old girl, girls, 13 and 12-year-old girls, they, their friends are, the idea of discriminating against gays and lesbians to all of their friends is, is out of the question. It's not, it's not even a, a debate. Like LGBTQ equality is just there. Now, I'm in Atlanta. I'm not in Oklahoma. But still, I think that's reasonably true. But they are divided on abortion. You, you can find a lot of kids, 14, 15, 16, who are, whose parents were very anti-choice and now, they're, and now they're divided. Those of us who are for reproductive rights for women need to find a way to, to get into the schools and deal with them, not deal with unelected life-tenured lawyers in Washington. It just seems to me everything yeah. you're saying is right. I guess my only point is, you know, as a man, I do have less at stake. Sure. That is just undeniable. And so I have an easier time, sure. and I acknowledge this, kind of pulling myself away from, you know, the, the feelings that I have about this and thinking somewhat dispassionately about, you know, is what to do about sure. the courts. Um, I, it's easier for me, and I acknowledge that. and. You know, I, I do hope nonetheless that people understand um, that at the end of the day, um, rights are not made by courts. They're, they're made by right. people. Right. And, you know, but rights are something we create. It's, right. it's, it's a statement about the kind of society we want to have. And the, the, the forum where that's going to happen more and more is, is the legislature, I think, just descriptively. I agree. And, and that's why I, and I agree. Eventually, we'll get to a place, I hope, where women have this poor middle class and rich women have this right. And we don't strip all taxpayer funding from Medicaid for abortions. But to get to that world, I think we have to lose Roe and Casey. And I know that's easy for me to say as a 
But I think there'll be better conditions for women in the long run if we do that. That's the only point I'm making. And, and that, I'm relatively sure that, that that's true. There are other issues that raise your question. It's an interesting one. So let's take affirmative action. Um, my, yeah. After 30 years of admissions committees and hiring committees and studying the issue, it's very easy for me to say that Justice Thomas is wrong when he talks about stigmatization and he, and he talks about the negative effects of affirmative action. And if I'm talking to a person of color about that, I'm going to be humble about my thoughts about it. Um, on the other hand, I know that if Georgia State Law School could use a quota, we would do better. <laughs> and the only reason we can't use a quota is because of the Supreme Court. And that seems very wrong to me. I don't think I have to step back from that conversation and say, of course, I'm not a person of color. I think I think I th- I, there is some hum- humility involved in all of these issues. Um, but I want what's best, I think, for everybody, as do you, as do they. So I don't, I don't, I, I, my, my, I don't know. I just think this issue comes up in other places other than abortion. Yeah. Look, I, I just feel in, in these issues, I mean, identity politics is a real phenomenon. And it's, it's, it's not something that I think has um, no proper role in the debate. I do think that your perspective is formed very powerfully by your own personal experience. And this sure. has a lot to do with your race and your gender. So, sure. and your social class, you know, we don't pay a ton of attention to social class, but I also think that has a lot Agreed. to do with Okay, but th- there is a concern here that I think involves all of us, which is how do we ma- how do we like make the rules in a democratic constitutional state, right? So so right. how do we make decisions? Um, how much as citizens do we subcontract out to lawyers and judges, just fancy lawyers, and how much? of the decision-making in the society comes from our own moral reasoning, our own political activism. So, so again, just getting back to the moment, I think what's really startling to me and actually kind of heartening to me about the way things have gone over the last four years is that the courts did very little to constrain Donald Trump. Actually, Congress didn't do a lot to constrain Donald Trump because of the partisan right. component makeup of the Senate. What, what constrained Donald Trump in the end, I think, was, was elections, right? The, 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 the Democrats winning the House and then the Democrats winning the Senate. That, in the end, constrained Donald Trump, plus activism on the left. So th- th- there's, there's a bunch of writing now about how prepared the left was and how organized the left was for Donald Trump's attempt to steal the election. And the organized left did a lot to stop that steal, yes. right? Uh, that... That is impressive. Um, th- that's the kind of attitude, the, the, the attitude of, you know, democracy is really just decisions made by people, not decisions made by elites that I think is heartening to me and, and is very much what I'm trying to get at in this article. Yeah, and I think you do a great job of that, Chris. And I, I, again, I, the articles in the NYU Law Review, I think it's most current edition, and I hope everybody yeah. looks at it. I want to circle, before we finish, I'd like to circle back because um, you have such a great international experience. Uh, and, and what so whenever, whenever, not whenever, but often when law schools have symposia about free speech in America compared to other countries, I'm the guy they, they call because I'm a European on free speech. Um, I believe in free speech, but I just don't think it's the all, be all and end all that America does. Um, right. What I want to get to, though, is something a little different. So from 2006, when Justice O'Connor resigned and Alito and Roberts came on in 2005, 
until 2018, which is 13 years. Our country's decisions on campaign finance reform, abortion, affirmative action, gun rights, all of that stuff was really in the hands of one man, Justice Kennedy. He was always, I mean, right. he, he was 95% 5-4 con law cases or something like that. And when he wasn't in the majority, it was a case not that many people cared about. How would you explain to people in Europe that we had a country where for 15 years, one man's views on these issues were really, the reason we have Citizens United is because of Anthony Kennedy. The reason we have Heller is that, although Scalia wrote it, if Kennedy doesn't go along with him, it's not there. Um, same thing for Shelby County, the disaster that that was. That can't be a good system, right? I mean, that just can't be. A, and, and, for, and actually, if you, go back to two, if you go back to 1986, it's O'Connor and Kennedy for like three decades. One of them is always in the majority, every time, almost always, in 5-4 cases. So in a lot of countries, people would have a very hard time understanding how that could possibly right. be. <laughs> right. Uh, so but let me just give you an example. So how different yeah. constitutional democracy is in some other places in terms of the balance between judicial power and yeah. legislative power. Okay. So in South Africa, in Germany, in Canada, those constitutions have something in common, which is they have a, a list of rights, but then they also have something called the limitations clause. And this, this is a constitutive of a very different approach to constitutional interpretation than the one that we take in the States. So let me give you a concrete example. When I first got to South Africa, I started clerking and there was a case, the mystery case, M-I-S-T-R-Y. It involved a, a doctor who had been arrested for distributing outside the rules of the South African Medicines Council a, a skin lightening cream. He, he, he distributed it without a prescription, which was legal. He'd been arrested. His office had been searched. And there was a question whether the search was lawful, whether the, the, the proper process had been complied with. Right. And when I saw a draft of the opinion, I noticed something which was um, so different from how an American court would undertake this. So an American court would say, okay, is the search reasonable, right? Um, and there would be a whole kind of historical analysis of what reasonable meant. And um, the, 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 con the, the court would issue a constitutional ruling, which, which meant that to change the rules about search and seizure, the, the legislature would actually have to amend the constitution, right? Because whatever the court does is a, is a reading of like the ambit of the Fourth right. Amendment. The South African court doesn't work that way. Okay, this is the constitutional court. They do constitutional law, but they do constitutional law with a bit more subtlety. So here's how they work. They look at the rule in the constitution and they say, well, it violates the rule. The question then is, is the, are the rules that the legislature sets up or the administrative agency sets up, are those permissible limitations of the rule? And in, in pronouncing on what a permissible limitation is, the court typically rules very narrowly such that if it finds the limitation manifestly, you know, unsuited, right, for right. a free, open, democratic society, the legislature can, like, adjust it a little bit. It doesn't have to amend the Constitution. It just changes the legislation a bit and tries again. This means that um, the, this, the constitutional court's rulings, and this is true of the German constitutional court, this is true of the Canadian constitutional court, they, they strike much more narrowly. They, they preempt much less democratic action than the typical ruling in the Fourth Amendment area of, of the Supreme Court of the United States. This isn't just um, different politics on the court. This is a completely different methodology, 
that is that is baked into modern constitutions. And part of the reason it's baked into modern constitutions is they look at ours and they think, man, this is way too Manichaean, right? right. This is way too much all or nothing. Right. Um, we need you know the dialogue that Barry's talking about. We need more of that. And to, to do that, they, they've adopted a very different model. Yeah, I always thought that the, the, the dialogue Barry talks about, you know, my, my kids and I can have a dialogue about what, what time they go to bed, but I'm the final decision maker. And in America, that's how the Constitution, that's how the court works. And it shouldn't be that way because we're not children. Unlike my children, right. we're not children. Um, everything you just said, I have to be selfish for a minute. I hope you don't mind about this. But I, I, I think a serious reason for all of this is because people in other countries have some understanding that although it's called a constitutional court in Germany, and it's really not a court. <laughs> and they understand the difference between their constitutional court and, and courts that decide, you know, civil actions and, and criminal actions. Right. Um, the idea that our Supreme Court is truly supposed to be a court in deciding whether or not affirmative action, abortion, campaign finance reform is going to be allowed is not something courts really do. And if we could just recognize that it's really in that role, a veto council of some kind, um, we might make some headway in, into your kind of proposals. And other, but, the, but, but people still really think they're judges like, you know, state superior court judges. And they're not. They, they, yeah. And especially because, so I don't know how many Americans have actually read a foreign constitution, but if right. you read the constitution of Germany, if you read the constitution of South Africa, these are much more detailed constitutions. Modern constitutions, especially with respect to the structure of government, and how government runs, are much more prescriptive than our constitution. So we have a court that people think of as a court, you know, doing court-like things without essentially the materials to do court like yes, this, right? Yes. We're, we're, kind of, we're kind of doing it on both ends. Yes. Right? We're both setting them up and kind of depriving them of guidance. So um, it is odd. And what, what, what's odd to me still, years after my experience in South Africa, is how difficult Americans find it to imagine that the way that they do things isn't the only way. So for example, you know, Marbury versus Madison, the idea that judicial review of the particular kind we have is, is, is kind of a necessary incident of a written constitution. Well, no, it's not. Right. And just empirically, if you look around, there are lots of other countries that have written constitutions. They're democratic, constitutional states, rights regarding, liberal, decent, affluent. They do it differently. In the Netherlands, there is no judicial review. In Switzerland, there's judicial review only of cantonal law, but not national law. In the UK, you know, there's there's the House of Lords, which the Supreme Court issues a a, a ruling, and and the Parliament may enact it into law or may not. Right? It's it, rulings are not self-executing. There's right. a whole plethora of different arrangements that we could yeah. we could refer to, but we we don't. We are stuck in this bubble. I hate to say it, this bubble of American self-regard that over time just looks more and more inappropriate to our place in the world. The, uh, well, I, I can't say it much better than that, the, or any better than that. The example I always give, I think England has a reasonably robust democracy and free speech, and they don't allow campaign ads for 30 days or 60 days or ever, I think. Prior, right. So now I'm not suggesting as a policy matter I would pick that, although I might. But the point is we are – 
nine justices away <laughs> from, from allowing a, I mean, I don't think any of the liberal justices would allow a law that said right. no TV ads for politicians in the 60 days prior to a campaign. Why are we so sure we're right about that? I mean, England's a pretty good country. They have a lot of free speech. I mean, it's the bubble you're not talking about. Not only are we sure we're right about that, but we're not willing to allow experimentation, right? So there's no sense in which, because we have this kind of all or nothing rule, that you know we can have some kind of right. uh, try at something else. We just can't, right? So look, I, I get it. I think that the, the, the U.S., has a long history now of this, you know, all or nothing style of judicial review. This is going to be a very difficult thing to displace if it ever gets displaced. But I mean, someone's got to say something because it is part of our current problem, right? The, the, the part of the current problem can be stated very simply. What has the GOP been doing? Why were they so eager to hold on to power? Because they feel that their political coalition is passing away. And what they want to do is they want through the federal judiciary to cement in place their political preferences on a wide range of issues. That is deeply, deeply disturbing yes. if you believe in democracy at all. That, that, is, that, that is what our dedication to this all or nothing style of judicial review, that is what it has brought us to. And ironically, we'll end with this, Justice, Scalia, Justice Scalia's dissent in the Casey abortion decision says everything you just, now he was a hypocrite and he didn't live with it, but you know, he, right. he has Casey dissent and then he would strike down law. He struck down over 140 laws in his career. But his point in that dissent is, is very similar to the point you just made. And something he used to say all the time is judicial review is about looking backward, which it is if, in, in, the, in theory, you have an old document sure. from law. And so my, my political narrative about the court, unprincipled, just my politics, is it is by definition anti-progressive, by definition pro-status quo, the Republican Party trying to cement 1950s American values in 2020 through the federal judiciary is an insane way to run a country, and we need to change it. And your, your article, um, I hope, gets part of a serious conversation about the problem and what to do about it. So thank you for writing it. Um, yeah. I hope so, too. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being here, Chris, and it's always great to see you. And when COVID's over, we're going to see each other in person. (laughs) I hope so soon. Thanks, Chris. Take care now.